Good morning, everyone. I am uh, Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here. It is good that we can be together uh, to continue asking questions for a friend. We are uh, we are in the midst of having some uh, conversations around what the Bible has to say about what some of our most pressing questions. Um, and today we answer the question. Uh, why do Christians abstain from sex outside of marriage? Which, boy, not a conversation I particularly want to have, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important because we live in a culture um, whose views of sexual intimacy are very different um, from what God lays out for us in the Bible. So, uh, to begin to answer this question, we are going to look at um, the creation narratives in Genesis and the narrative of the fall, because I think it begins to frame what this gift of sexual intimacy that God gives us is all about. Why it is a good thing, but uh, as is the case with all good things, when they are taken out of their proper order can become soul-crushing. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, um, and by uh, day six, we read these words. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over, living, over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So in, um, in the book of Genesis, we have two creation accounts that are presented together. Um, in this first one, we see that uh, by the end of day five, uh, the triune God looks out and says, hey, let's, let's do one more final act of creation. Let's create humans. Let's create them in our image. And God does so. He creates a man and a woman, and his command to them is be fruitful and multiply. And one of the uh, the aspects of this gift of um, sexual intimacy is that it can result in children. And this is a good thing. None of us would be here if that wasn't the case. Don't think too hard about it. It'll make your brain explode. But it's true. It's true. One of the gifts of sex is that there is the continuation of the human race. And more specifically, you and me, and that's a good thing for us. 
But Genesis 1 does not present the only picture of creation. We also see another narrative beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. And here the author of Genesis writes, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up from the earth, and God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river watered the garden flowing from even, and there, and there it was, it, and it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of the land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It r- runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the, Euphra- the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, this man, there was no suitable helper. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh." Adam and his wife were both naked, and yet they felt no shame. So, the first narrative and the second narrative paint a slightly different picture of the order of creation. In the first narrative, all of creation is basically done, and then God says, humans. Humans will be the final act. This will make it perfect. But in the second uh, picture of creation, we see a human man as the first piece of the created order. And then you get animals, and you get birds, and you get fish, and you get reptiles, and none of them are suitable. And then you have a woman. At the, at the end of the first narrative, and to uh, the man and woman are be fruitful and multiply. But in the second one, there's a promise that you will leave your mother and father, and be united to your wife, you'll become one flesh. The second gift of sexual intimacy that we discern from reading these creation narratives in Genesis is that gift of becoming one flesh, that gift of extreme intimacy, that that gift of a particular 
special act of worship and connection that is designed for the husband and wife. But it didn't take long for them to screw it up. And this is, this is something important for us to understand, that, that God's sexual intimacy is good, but we are experiencing it in a broken form. And as we read into chapter 3, we see this happen. After uh, the man and woman have eaten from uh, the, the fruit of, or the, from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil... We see, then the man and his wife, we're in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So what's the first brokenness of this gift? It's shame. At the end of chapter 2, they were naked and they thought nothing of it. Now... They feel shame at their nakedness. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. He knew better. He knew better. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. But she knew better too. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. So the command, be fruitful and multiply, now is going to be less enjoyable. Which, by the way, I am so glad that it is uh, the woman who was tasked with bearing children because the reality is that women are a lot tougher than men. If it had been men, we wouldn't have lasted like three generations as a species. Continuing on, verse 17, to Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and you ate fruit from the tree from which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. First ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. I think there's a lot we can learn here from these first three chapters of Genesis. And I think this can be extrapolated to the way we think about virtue and vice, the way we think about the gifts of God and sinfulness really across the spectrum. Because the gift of God, as it relates to sexual intimacy is that you have this deep, incredible connection, this, this act of worship. You have the capacity 
for a procreative act. But because of the brokenness of the world, because of the fall, we see the ways that it can go sideways. That the gift of sex as God intends it is within the constructs and the form and the shape of the created order. But because of the fall, having children is painful. Because of the fall, uh, the wife's desire will be for her husband and he will rule over you. That doesn't sound like one flesh to me. This gift that God has given us has been broken because sin has entered into the world. Now, sin at its most simplest is, hum- is when a human out of their own selfishness, chooses to disorder or abuse one of the gifts of God. So, food is a gift of God. It nourishes our bodies. It gives us the capacity to move and and be healthy. But when we disorder food either by not eating enough of it or eating entirely too much of it, we can fall into problems. We can run into issues that will have the effect of making it more difficult for us to know God. This is true for uh, food. This is true for resources. This is true for how we see ourselves, how we see others. And it's true for sex. The problem with sin is that it makes it more difficult for us to know God. Sin separates us from God. This is what, the, what Paul writes in Romans. So the reason why we need to think long and hard about these questions of sexual ethics and, and really about ethics in general is because sin is a problem. It's not just, you know, some sort of ethereal concept floating in the sky somewhere. Sin has the capacity to make it incredibly difficult to know God. Sin will separate us from God. The choice to disorder creation rather than to use it in the way that God intends will separate us and hurt and break and uh, make it more difficult for us to know God. But Genesis 3 doesn't leave us with simply a bleak outlook on the future because creation is broken. In verse 15, God says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between her offspring and yours. That the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head, even though the serpent will strike his heel. Even here at the very beginning, at, the, at the, the nexus event of the fall, 
God gives us the promise of one who will come and strike the serpent's heel. One who will come and will put creation back in its proper order. One who will save. Our next scripture today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says these words. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have had sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the king of God, the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with, his own, her, with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a, as a concession, not as a command. I wish that you all were, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So when I was in high school, and we had the sex talk. Invariably, it became a conversation about what is okay 
and what is not okay. So we'd start, well, what about hand-holding? Is hand-holding okay? Yeah, that's probably okay. What about kissing? Is kissing okay? Well, yeah, that's probably okay. What about kissing with tongues? Well, maybe not. Heavy petting. Like, I mean, the list went on and on and on. And, and I look back and it's like, what were we doing? Like, this isn't particularly helpful. Because it's trying to create this sort of rigid list without getting to the main point. Which is that sin is that which separates us from God. The the idea is not to figure out how close we can get to sin without crossing over into it. The idea is to flee from sin rather than flirt with it. There's a story of a, uh, there was a baron in Germany who his longtime driver was retiring. And he was going to hire a new driver from down in the village. And three men applied to be the baron's driver. The baron lived up on top of this hill with a long, windy road that got to the baron's estate, and the village was down at the bottom of the hill. And the driver drove the big black Mercedes Benz to the bottom of the hill, and he found you know, the three men in the village who were applying to be the driver. And he got in with each of the guys, and he said, I want you to drive as close as you safely can to the edge of the road. Now, the edge of the road, of course, was a cliff that would roll the Mercedes-Benz down into the village. He said, I want you to drive as safely as you can to the edge of the road all the way up to the Baron's estate and back down. So the first driver got in the Mercedes-Benz and he drove that car a foot from the side of uh, the ledge the entire way up. Got down to the bottom, the driver thanked him, the next potential driver got in. And he drove six inches from the, from the edge the whole way up and the whole way back down. The, the retiring driver thanked that driver. The third driver got in and he hugged the mountainside, left a car length between him and the edge. And when they got to the top, the driver said, congratulations, you're hired. Because the goal of getting the baron to the estate is not to see how close you could drive to the edge, it's to get to the top. So driving safely was the goal, even though that wasn't expressly stated. So as as Christians, we have this long sort of history and this long tradition of talking about which sexual activities are permissible outside of marriage, which sexual activities are permissible inside of marriage, what is never permissible, right? Um, And over time, you know, there are conversations about, you know, moving things from one list to another. And sometimes there are really, uh, really compelling reasons to move things into a, you know, maybe that's, that's, that's more safe um, in, a, in a permissible, and into the, the bucket of permissibility. But the question shouldn't be whether or not 
you know, this thing might be permissible, whether I have enough evidence to say, yeah, it's probably okay for me to do this thing. Because if the danger is that if it is truly sinful, it's going to separate me from God, then why would I even want to flirt with it? The gift of sexual intimacy that God gives us, the the ordering of it is for a husband and wife to grow in their connection and their intimacy and to become one with another and for, uh, in some cases, when you get lucky, a child to be born. And everything that falls outside of that is disordering the gift. So here's the bad news. All of us are guilty of disordering the gift. All of us. It is impossible to live your life as a human on this planet without disordering the gift. If you drive through the bikini car wash twice, you've disordered the gift. And, you know, extrapolating out, don't give me that look, you know, extrapolating it out, like, like we all have disordered the gift of sexual intimacy in one way or another. And this should give us incredible compassion for those who've disordered the gift in a way that we've been able to not to this point. Because when we start trying to parse out, well, you know, how badly can someone disorder the gift? And are some disorderings okay and some aren't? I mean, we're asking the wrong question. Because even within a marriage, we can disorder the gift. If we have used sex as a weapon in our marriage, we have disordered the gift. If we have selfishly tried to coerce our uh, spouse into doing something they weren't interested in doing, we've disordered the gift. And this is within the confines of the way we think that the gift is is intended to be played out. So Paul lays out a long list. And my guess is that as, um, as the messenger read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, one at a time they went, ouch, 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 ugh, ooh, ouch. Because... As I read through this list, I find myself in there. We all find ourselves in there somewhere. And the, the, the challenge that we have as 21st century people is that instead of saying, oh, ouch, I am in there, I have disordered this gift of God. 
Instead, we say, well, did I really? I'm pretty sure I can justify what I did. Like, I, I don't, you know, that was a long time ago. This is now. Paul didn't know what life was like, yada, 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 yada. Like, this is the danger. The, the danger is not disordering the gift of sex. Because the reality is we're all going to do it. It's inevitable. The danger is when we start justifying it and being like, you know, it's probably actually okay. That's the danger. Is, is when instead of, instead of trying to flee from sin, we find ourselves flirting with it. In verse 12, Paul makes a statement on behalf of the Corinthian church. I have the right to do anything, you say. Welcome to America in the 21st century, friends. Where as long as it's not abusing a child, you have the right to do anything. But what is Paul's response? Not everything is beneficial, and I refuse to be mastered by anything. If we want to have a biblical sexual ethic, the question is not, is this permissible? Can I get by with this? Does this somehow fall outside of the category of sin? But the question is, is this beneficial? And do I have mastery over this, or is this mastering me? Am I controlling my impulses, or are my impulses controlling me? So in the Bible, we have uh, two of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Um, we think he probably wrote more than two, but we have at least two of them. Um, and here in 2 Corinthians, um, Paul says more about sin that I think is really beneficial. Paul writes, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? <coughs> or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Baal? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people." Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts, 
We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. For even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow has led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to your own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. If I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me, but just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is greater than when he remembers that you are all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. We don't like being sad, generally. But hear what Paul says about the sadness that leads to repentance. I can see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. I am now happy because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to your repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so are not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Our sin should make us somewhat sorrowful. Recognizing that the behaviors that we engage in, that the decisions that we make are separating us from God should lead to sadness. Instead of experiencing the fullness of God's presence and power in our lives the way that was intended, we have a fraction of it, and that should bum us out. And the goal being that we choose repentance. When uh, Cindy and I were first married, uh, we had a a youth group in our first church um, up in uh, Sandusky County, Ohio. And um, 
And you know, the, the time came when the parents were like, hey, we need you to talk to our kids about sex because we don't want to do it. We said, thanks. Since they're like six years younger than we are, like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, but, you know, I, I remember vividly, we sat there with, uh, you know, the, the you know, dozen kids in the community who had come to, to youth group, and we said, here's the deal. The gift of sex that God gives us is a good gift. It's designed for us to, to have children. It's designed for us to connect in a special way with our spouse um, in this act of worship. But we aren't stupid. We know that according to the data, a third of you have already abused the gift. Here's the deal. We still love you. Jesus still loves you. The church is still your home. Like, we can repent and be made new. I said, and in, in more than that, half of you, by the time you're done with high school, will likely have you know, disordered this gift. The good news is Jesus still loves you. We still love you. The church is still your home. Now, the nearest university to us was Bowling Green. And we said, hey, most of you are going to go to Bowling Green, and according to the data, 90% of you, by the end of your first semester, will have you know, abused and disordered the gift. But here's the good news. Jesus still loves you. We still love you. The church is still your home. And then we said, here's the deal. If, uh, if we're going to extrapolate and talk about all the ways that we can abuse the gift, you know, including all of you with high-speed internet, the reality is that we've all abused the gift already to this point. But God still loves us. Jesus still loves us. I still love you. And the church is still your home. At the end of the day, the good news as it relates to sexual sin is that even though all of us are going to fall short, our sin cannot separate us from the love of God. It can't. It's impossible. But the work of God in our lives will convict us and lead us to repentance so that we can be transformed and know God more fully. So, uh, I say to you the same thing I said to uh, our kids in Kansas. 100% of you have abused the gift at one point or another. But I still love you. Jesus still loves you. This church is your home, and we have the opportunity to repent and be made new. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that our sin cannot separate us from your love. That like the woman at the well, you come to us 
and you offer us living water. Lord, may we have the courage to repent from trying to fill our desires and our needs in ways that are unpleasing and dishonoring to you. And give us the courage to receive your living water today. Help us to live lives that flee from sin rather than flirting with it. Help us to live lives that recognize and embrace your sacrifice. Which frees us from slavery to sin frees us from slavery to death and gives us the freedom to choose, to reclaim what the gifts that you give us are intended for. Lord, you are good. And we thank you that when we are in the midst of our own sin, when we are clouding our own minds and hearts from knowing you, that you reach out to us, that you invite us into the life that we were designed to live, that you invite us to know you, that you invite us to be a part of your kingdom. And we pray all of this today in the most powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you would, let's rise and sing our final hymn together.
our Lord Jesus Christ, go near you to defend you, go before you to guide you, go behind you to forgive you, go above you to bless you, and live within you so you may love one another. He lives and reigns with our Father and Holy Spirit, one God now and even forevermore. Amen. Amen.